Uh, if you have your Bibles today, we're in Acts chapter 4. We're in uh, the third week of a series called The Power and Pressure of a Jesus Movement. We're in Acts chapter 3 and 4. In Acts chapter 3, we saw the power of a miracle. Peter and John uh, healed a man who'd been lame from birth last week. We saw the power of a message, very specifically a message about repentance. Um, Peter looked at the people and he was like, y'all messed up. And y'all did this wrong, and y'all are headed in the wrong direction, and you need to change. And, and they did. Uh, I thought what Marcellus last week said about repentance, and the holy ground of repentance, when it's authentic, when it's humble, when it's specific, was one of the more powerful things um, that I've heard about just leaning into being willing to repent and to allow others to repent to you. I thought it was really, really powerful. So we saw uh, the power of a miracle. We saw the power of a message. Today in Acts chapter 4, we're going to see the pressure that the power of Jesus created in the life of these disciples as they're kind of called before the authorities. But I think to set this series in, in context, um, I, I need to have you understand one thing about it. So say the words one day. So Acts chapter three and four is only one day of life. Uh, and it's interesting. I, I call it a, a, a day in the life of the church. Um, Acts 2.42 and then the end of Acts chapter four in the exact same way. So the end of Acts chapter 2 is a summary of the church, and the summary is like, it's awesome. Vertical impact, horizontal impact, eternal impact. The church is awesome. End of Acts chapter 4, almost verbatim. Everyone's a one accord. People were getting saved. People have favor with God. It's almost the exact same paragraph. Acts chapter 2 ends with the ch everything in the church is going great. Acts chapter 4 ends with everything in the church is going great. And right between in Acts chapter 3 and 4 is a 24 to 28 hour period. Acts chapter 3 starts at 3 p.m. Acts chapter 4 is going to end right around dinner time, about 24 hours later. And it's going to remind us that while Jesus is awesome... Sometimes we can have hard days as Jesus followers. Like the movement of Jesus, the church of Jesus, the power of Jesus is incredible. And sometimes we have really hard days at the exact same time. And some of you today are in the middle of like Acts chapter 3 and 4. Like you really do believe God is good and what he's done on either side of what you're going through. It has been incredible, he's going to be incredible, but right now you're going through a hard day spiritually. That is the picture of what we're stepping to in Acts chapter four today, just like one day in the life of a church. And as we jump into Acts chapter four today, what we're gonna read is a conversation about salvation that Peter has with the rulers of Israel on the temple mount of Israel. So as we jump into Acts chapter four, here's what we're gonna read, verses one through 12 today. It says, as they, that's Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were the high priestly family. And when they'd set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him... This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, 
the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So in John chapter 4, we eavesdrop on a conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at the well. The woman wants to talk to Jesus about water, but he navigates that discussion into being a conversation about salvation. She gets off on another tangent about religion, and he is somehow able to navigate that conversation about religion into a conversation about salvation. She eventually gets to the point where she talks about broken family and broken marriages and judgment of people, but he's able to navigate even that conversation into a conversation about salvation, and he'll tell his disciples in Luke chapter 12, 11, one day you're going to be dragged into conversations you don't want to be a part of. You're going to be dragged before rulers. When you get there, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will help you turn that conversation into a conversation about salvation in Jesus. The Apostle Peter, when he's writing one of the last messages, sermons to the church that he'll ever write, in 1 Peter 3.15 will say, um, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. Like, always be prepared to take a conversation and turn it into a conversation about salvation. I think before we jump into today's Bible study, it's important to realize that what we saw today was a conversation about salvation, but it did not start that way. Only one person intended to have a conversation about salvation. The, the high priestly family was talking about something totally different, but Peter took what they were talking about and he, he figured out how to point the conversation in the direction of Jesus. I think it's important for the church in 2024 to learn how to do this. I think it's important for us as we have conversations with people in our life about water and religion and marriage and brokenness and politics and jobs, I think it's important that we learn to hear through what people are saying to understand that the hope, the peace, the joy, the security they're looking for really can't be found in what they're talking about. It can only be found in Jesus. I think it's important that the church learns to figure out how to turn every conversation into a conversation about salvation when it is appropriate. We're looking at Acts chapter 3 and 4 at a day in the life of the church. I would say this. I think a day in the life of a Christian should be filled with conversations about salvation if and when that is the appropriate end to the conversation that we're having. Peter does a brilliant job of saying, I know what you're asking, but I also know the answers that you're not even looking for. Let me help you understand who Jesus is. And he takes kind of five parts of this conversation and he just keeps using them to leverage them to point to Jesus. I want to look at these today as we read back over Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. The first is he's going to take the place of salvation. And he's going to leverage it to help people understand about the, the person of salvation, Jesus. So somebody say foundation stone. Foundation. Now somebody say cornerstone. cornerstone. So what we've, what we've got here is a, a picture of is salvation found in the foundation stone or the cornerstone of Israel? In verse 11, Peter will use the word cornerstone, but we need to understand the scene of the conversation was the place of salvation for the Jewish people called the foundation stone. So I'm gonna throw some pictures on the screen that will help you kind of picture what I'm talking about, and then I wanna take you to Israel with me to, to have a conversation about the foundation stone. So if you drive into the old city of Jerusalem today from any direction, you're going to see the Dome of the Rock, the third holiest Muslim shrine, sitting on top of the Temple Mount, which Herod built from the time of Jesus. 
but it is sitting on top of where the Old Testament temple and the temple, Herod's temple, in the time of Jesus would have been. It literally is in the exact same location. I did not know until I took my first trip to Israel several years ago how Israelis and Jewish history picture this spot on planet Earth. So they, uh, there's a word in Hebrew, kotel, which means wall. And there's a place where you can go, not only visit the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall that you've seen in pictures, only about a fourth of it's actually uncovered, but you can go underneath the, the old kind of Temple Mount and you can walk along the streets from the time of Jesus, literally to the bedrock of the mountains from the time of Abraham. It's, it's a fascinating journey to take. And as you start this journey with Jewish rabbis teaching you about the Temple Mount, they teach you that underneath the Dome of the Rock is what Jewish historians refer to as the foundation stone. You say, what is the foundation stone? Here's what they believe happened there. Here's how they teach what happened there. They believe that the top of the mountain that the Dome of the Rock currently sits on, that the Old Testament temple used to sit on, is where God took a lump of dirt, created Adam, breathe life into him, and that is the very place of the foundation of not just humanity, but a relationship between God and humanity. Now, that obviously cannot be proven, but that's what Jewish history teaches. What can probably be proven a few thousand years later is that Abraham was asked as a show of his faith to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he went to what scripture calls uh, Mount Moriah or Mount Moriah. And there he put his son Isaac on an altar and he raised his knife and God said, no, 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 not your son, the ram, a substitute for your son. They believe the Dome of the Rock is built right on top of the mountain where Abraham was gonna sacrifice his son, Mount Moriah. Hundreds of years later, King David would be ruling in Jerusalem and a plague would come on the people of Israel because of his sin as the leader. And as this plague was getting ready to sweep south onto the city of David, the old city of Jerusalem, David looked up and he saw kind of the plague that was coming as a result of his sin. And he rushed up north of old Jerusalem to a site that was known as the threshing floor, or kind of the, the, the barnyard of a place called Aranua, the Jebusite. And he stopped there and, and he said, God, if I will sacrifice to you, if I will repent, if I will say, you're, I'm sorry, God, will you relent from this plague on my people? And it was there that God chose to accept a sacrifice rather than to punish all the people of Israel. David said, because God, uh, because God revealed himself to me there, this is where my son Solomon will build the temple. And he later built the temple that was torn down a few hundred years later by Babylon that was rebuilt a few hundred years later that Herod made what it is where today the Dome of the Rocks is. So they believe this is the place where God created humanity for relationship. And where God had stepped in time and time again to bring a substitute sacrifice in so that he could continue in relationship with humanity. They believe the place, as we'll read later in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen, was the most important place on planet earth. And Peter says this place, this foundation stone is important, but not as important as the cornerstone who is Jesus because this place is not the forever place of salvation. This place was the future picture of what salvation would look like. Sinful people coming to God who needed a sacrifice to step in. And he said that was Jesus. The foundation stone of salvation is the cross of Jesus, not the dust of the temple mount. And Peter said, I know where we are and I know what you think of this place. But there is a stone greater than the one that we're talking on right now. There's a stone greater than the one we're standing on. And his name is Jesus. He says in verse 11, this Jesus is the stone 
that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Jesus, when we are separated from God, Jesus and his cross is who we go to to find relationship and connection with God. I don't know if you know this, the Bible talks about two types of sin, uh, sins of commission, sins of omission. Sins of commission are sins you commit. Um, it's where God says clearly to you through his word or through his Holy Spirit, don't do this, and you do it anyway. That's called committing sin, sins of commission. You live in rebellion to God. You say, how can I live in relationship to God while I also live in rebellion to God? Because the cross offers forgiveness. And as I prayed with somebody between services today who was praying for one of her boys, I told her, as far as I know, um, there's, not a, a, there's not a maximum amount of times or a minimum amount of times that you're allowed to go to the cross. I don't think after like 20, you're not allowed to go anymore. Like she told me what her son's going through and I said, he can always come back to the cross. Like there's not a limit. Like you can always come back to the cross. Sins of omission are things God said, do this. And you're like, I don't want to. You just omit your action. James says the good you ought to do that you don't do, that's sin. So you say, how can I be in rebellion to God because he's told me to do something, but I haven't, and in relationship with God, the cross. The cross provides covering. The cross provides forgiveness. The cross is the place of salvation. So Peter leverages where they are to say it's not this foundation stone. The cornerstone is the cross of Jesus and what he's done for us. He also talks, number two, about the person of salvation. This would answer the question, who's really responsible to connect people to God? I don't know if you noticed this. He's having a conversation with a pretty important group of people. Verse six says, the high priestly family comes in and sits down with Peter. The audience of this conversation were the family of priests ordained to connect the people of Israel to the God of Israel. So if you remember Exodus chapter 12, the big Passover story, every firstborn everywhere died except for those who painted their houses in blood and God passed over them. After he got done, he said, hey, all your firstborn made it. They belong to me now. Like I purchased them with the blood of the lamb. But I'm not gonna take all your oldest kids. I'm gonna take one of your 12 tribes instead, the Levites. They're gonna serve me on behalf of the firstborns that I let live. That's Numbers chapter one. In Numbers chapter three, we learned that there were three families that were a part of this, the Merarites, the Gershonites, the Kohathites. These would be the three that kind of camped around the, the tabernacle. And he said, this group will be responsible for keeping my presence near the people. But we find out in Numbers 16 that not just any priest could be the mediator between God and man. There was only gonna be one, the high priest. Aaron and his family, Aaron and his sons and his grandsons forever and ever and ever would be the line of people who kept people close to God. The high priestly family, they were important people. But this one had become a little corrupted. The people of Israel knew it. The people of Rome knew it. So how do you know they'd become corrupted? Because Annas was the true high priest who was removed as high priest, not by uh, Israel, not by God, but by Rome. Um, Annas had seven sons. They all ended up serving as high priests because that's how it worked. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. He was not born into the priestly line. But Rome liked him better because he gave them a better cut of the offerings that were coming into the temple than Annas did. So we got this high priestly line who's supposed to connect people to God, who's a little bit corrupted, and they're asking Peter, help us understand this message, um, by what name are you saying people can be connected to God in verse seven? The high priestly family wanted to know if God was exhibiting through this healing that his salvation was coming through a new name. 
Now, I believe this is a sincere question from people who would have been very schooled in Scripture. You say, why is that? You can trace back through history. If you take all of the Old Testament and then you take Jewish history through the fall of the temple in 8070, 88 generations, let me say it again, 88 generations of high priests. It's like thousands, like 88 generations of high priests that lasted until the time of the second temple. But every one of those priests from the Levitical line of the high priest, according to the Old Testament, would only be a placeholder for a different type of priest known as the Messiah who would come and rescue his people. In Psalm 110 verse 4, there's a prophecy about the future king of Israel who would be a priest of Israel who would be a different type of priest than all these Levitical high priests. He's, uh, David says in Psalm 110 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, speaking to the Messiah, after the order of Melchizedek. You say, who's, who's Melchizedek? Great question. He is the priest of the Most High God who connects with Abraham after Abraham uh, wins this battle. Uh, we don't know where he's from, and we don't know the end of his story. So metaphorically, David is saying, you know, Melchizedek, somebody with, without heritage before, without heritage after, he, he kind of symbolizes someone who appears to be um, eternal. And he was the priest of the Most High God in Salem, which was the physical geography of Jerusalem. And Abraham comes to him, and because he's the priest of the Most High God, Abraham offers him a tithe of everything. David says the Messiah will be a priest like Melchizedek. You say, well, how do you know Melchizedek wasn't a Levite? Because Levi, Levi had not even been born yet. So Abraham offers a sacrifice to Melchizedek, and then Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and three generations later, Jacob has Levi. So Melchizedek couldn't have been a Levite because he was three generations before the Levites. 400 years later, a couple Levites would be born named Moses and Aaron, and Miriam. And they would start this high priesthood thing 700 years after Melchizedek. So all the priests were aware that when the Messiah came, God was gonna do something different. And I think the high priestly family was sincerely asking this question like, is this kind of the time of the changing of the guards? Because they would have known scripturally that that was happening. And Peter's like, thanks for asking the question, Yes, it's now time for the changing of the guard. By what name is salvation found in? Peter says in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name. 88 generations strong. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So we see Peter takes the place of salvation and he says, I, I can use this to talk about the chief cornerstone Peter, talking to the high priestly family, says, I can introduce you to a better high priest. He also, we know, is discussing and talking about, number three, the power of salvation, which is kind of what upsets the authorities. The power of salvation is eternal life. And while it's not to us, it was annoying to the Jewish leaders to hear people talk about the power of salvation being eternal life. Because what Peter was saying is that the proven message of Christianity is that there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. It was this statement that caused a group of spiritual leaders on the Temple Mount known as the Sadducees to come running to say, stop saying that. Stop saying that someone rose from the dead. Stop saying that people will raise from the dead. 
That's annoying. Why is it annoying? Because we don't believe that. Acts 23, 4 says the Sadducees didn't believe in eternal life. They did not believe in spirits. They did not believe in demons. They did not believe in anything supernatural. And they were leading Israel at this time. So just the fact that Peter's saying Jesus died, but he rose from the dead, and that says that one day when you die, you can raise from the dead, they're like, stop, please stop saying that. The power of salvation is eternal life. It's interesting that re resurrection life is not just the hope of Christianity. It's the history of Christianity. It's not something we hope will happen. It's something we believe did happen which we believe gives us proof that it can happen to us. I don't know if you noticed this, but we're like the only religion in the world, not that promises eternal life, but that has proven it before we promised it. Like those who are following the faith of Islam, they're hoping for eternal life. Kind of the promises of the Quran are if you follow the five pillars of Islam and you give alms and you pray five times a day, like there is hope that Allah will look on you with favor. Like, like the promises and the hope in the scripture are saying, hopefully this will happen. The only guaranteed way is to give your life as a martyr and have 72 virgins waiting on you. Like the teaching of the book is, hey, we're hoping that this will happen, but there's nothing in our history to prove that it does. We don't have anyone in our book who died and came back to life and is like, see, told you I can do it. Our Mormon friends are believing that if they go on their two-year mission trip and they follow all the rules perfectly and if they wear their special undergarments and if they get married in a Mormon church and if they marry into a good Mormon family, like they're hoping they can work their way to the highest heaven by what they do. They're hoping there's life after this one. It's what their scripture says. It's what their scripture promises. It's what their scripture says to work for. There's just no one who's done it yet in their book or in their story that says it's work. This guy did it. He died. He came back to life. That's what's going to happen to you too. And the same thing was true in Judaism. They had their festivals. They had their sacrifices. They had their tabernacles. They had their temple. There was this great hope that there might be life after death. There was just not proof of that yet until Jesus died and rose from the dead and said, did it. The message of Christianity is not that a resurrection might happen, it's that a resurrection did happen. Amen. And we have to like lean into that a little bit. I love Jesus' prayer in John chapter 11, verses 41 through 42. Jesus is getting ready to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. He prays one of my favorite prayers in the New Testament because he says out loud, this prayer is not for me, and God, this prayer is not for you. Like that's an interesting prayer. What did he say? Here's what he says, standing outside Lazarus' tomb. God, I'm praying this prayer not because I need to pray this prayer, not because you need to hear this prayer, because we already know that people live after they die. But because these people don't know that, God, I'm gonna tell Lazarus to get out of the grave so that we can prove what we are promising. Lazarus, come out. And he did. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says it this way, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. The power of salvation is eternal life. It's not something we just hope for. It's something we have a history of. A guy died and then came back to life and said, I can do that for you too. We're not hoping it's true. By faith, we're believing that we've been told that it's true. And Jesus is just the first of many who will come after him. That is the power of salvation. Look at the product of salvation, number four. The product of salvation is a changed life. 
So Jesus, or uh, Peter and John and this guy they healed are called in before the high priestly family. And they're like, you gotta tell us, uh, you gotta tell us how you did what you did to that guy. And I love Peter, he's like, you talking about this guy? And he says in verse 10, you talking about, you talking about this guy who right now is standing before you well? I think it's a great reminder to us that Christianity is not just a story of new learning, it's a story of new life. Christianity is not just something we believe. Christianity is something we become, amen? Like, Peter's like, you talking about this guy? Well, here's what's true. Like, salvation changed this guy's life. He couldn't walk, and now he can walk. I feel like the high priest family was asking the wrong question because the question they asked was, how'd you do it? Maybe a better question to ask would have been this. Can you do it to me? Because I got some things in my life that are crippled and need they need strength. I've got some things in my marriage. I've got some things in my parenting. I've got some things in my past. I've got some addictions and hangups in my present. Like, instead of asking, how did this guy get made well? Maybe a better question is, can I be made well too? Maybe the, the best question for Christians to continue to ask every year of their life, every week of their life, maybe every day of their life is, God, what today needs to be changed in me? If you think there are no more answers to that question, you don't know the Bible very well. Every, every Christian should be asking in every season of their life, God, now, what do you want to change in me? Not how does change occur, but God, what do you want to change in me? So a couple weeks ago, I got a text message from my son Christian, who's a senior at Liberty University, He's been serving as a youth director in a little country church in southwestern Virginia, about 30 minutes from Liberty. And he said, Dad, the, uh, the pastor asked me if I would preach on a Sunday morning for him. And I said, Are, you think you're ready for that? And he said, I, I'd like to try. And I said, do it. And I said, I, if you do it, I will be there. So he told me the Sunday, it was last Sunday, Danielle and I booked flights. My mom and dad met us down there. We went to support him. And it, it was so cool um, to just sit on the second row as Christian's dad. Not pastor, but just... Christian's dad hanging out, uh, supporting his boy. We, um, after the message, we sent it out to lots of friends and families, their YouTube channel of, hey, here's where you can watch the service and here's where you can watch Christian's message. And almost everyone um, who, who got back to me said something like this, man, you must be so proud. You must be so proud. And I am, but that was not my primary emotion. As I sat on that second row at New Beginnings Baptist Church in Alta Vista, Virginia last week, and watched my son preach, my feeling wasn't pride as much as it was maybe relief, um, joy, rest, because here's what I was thinking. Not how glad I was that my son was preaching, but as I sat there, I was so relieved that he loved Jesus. I care less if he ever preaches. Like as a parent with a 22-year-old son, like that's the goal. Like, you wonder if you can ever release your kids and if they're gonna walk with Jesus. And as, as I sat there and listened to him talk about Jesus, I thought, man, thank God. Thank God he loves Jesus. Thank God he believes the Bible and wants to tell people about it. Thank God he's serving Jesus. Like, it wasn't pride as much as it, it was just an overwhelming sense of gratitude. Especially for those of you who know my son a little bit. Uh, so Christian, when we started our church, was in third grade. He grew up in our church. And like so many teenagers, um, he was in spiritually out, spiritually in, spiritually out, spiritually. He did everything. 
never missed church on Sunday morning, never missed church on Wednesday night. He went to all our youth camps. He served on the mission field. Um, but his heart was never hot for Jesus. Best way to say it. He had other things that were more important. Jesus was probably top 10, maybe top five sometimes. But he's just, he was never all in. Um, and then between his freshman and sophomore year of college, he went to serve at a youth camp in Alabama. And God just totally and radically grabbed a hold of his heart and turned his life upside down. The first phone call he called with, it was like, something's different. And when he came home, he was a different, spiritually a different human being than the one who had gone down. He was changed in an instant forever. Uh, he accepted a call into full-time ministry, ended up at Liberty University. About halfway through his first semester, he was taking a theology class and he called me. And he said, Dad, I got a question, but I don't want you to get mad at me. So I'm, like, I'm not gonna get mad at you, what's the question? And he said, is it possible that I just got saved this summer? Is it possible I just got saved? So why, why do you ask that? And he said, I have never felt about Jesus the way I feel now. I just think about him all the time. I feel like I hear from the Holy Spirit all the time, like I can't get enough of the Bible. And he said, the more I'm learning about theology in the Bible, it sounds like this is what real Christianity is supposed to look like. Is it possible I just got saved? I said, two answers. One will be good for you as a young pastor. Um, one, never, um, never determine salvation based on your current state of sanctification. That, that can make you a legalist and it, make, it can make you make people earn where you are before they're saved. So be careful there. But secondly, maybe, maybe. Christian, I don't know if the Holy Spirit in your life was turned on or if it was just turned up. But I do know this, when you walk with Jesus, he talks to you every day. And if you're in here today and at the end of every week, you hear the Holy Spirit say to you, Nailed it. Don't need to change anything. He's been overwritten by AI, and that's not really him. Because like the Holy Spirit will always be speaking to your life about the next change that is needed to become more like Jesus or to serve in the mission of Jesus. The product of salvation is a changed life. The potential of salvation Number five is a growing and explosive movement. You need to understand this. If you read this book from the Garden of Eden to the heavenly city of eternity, one of the great words that God uses over and over and over again is multiply. From Eden to eternity, God's kingdom is multiplying. It says in verse four that 5,000 men had now joined the Jesus movement. And I think it's important in the era of church growth, to remind ourselves that the Jesus movement counts followers from the cross. They don't count crowds sitting in church. But the crowd does keep growing. One person, one soul, one salvation at a time. The Jesus movement counts followers from the cross, not crowds, but the crowd does grow. Uh, one of the many things that... Uh, Danielle's trying to help me do this year to get healthier as I turn 46. She wants me to drink more water this year because she saw someone on Instagram that said drink more water. So this year I'm <laughs> trying to drink more water. And she got me a Yeti to travel with. Uh, not, not like the, uh, 
Bigfoot, uh, but like a, like a steel iron cup thing that looks like my grandpa's thermos. Uh, she makes me take it on airplanes with me now. So we traveled a little bit in February, um, and she would take my Yeti. Um, and before I get on a plane, she'd be like, go fill your... Like, all right, I'll fill my Yeti up. <laughs> so I'm going through all these different airports filling my, filling my Yeti up. Have any of you done this, or is it, am, I the only, am I the only guy doing this? So like... By water fountains, there's a thing you can stick your cup in and it fills your deal. Every place you do that at, there's a little counter above it that either says, this is how many plastic bottles of water were saved or this is how many turtles were saved. I, like, I, couldn't, I couldn't interpret it, but it was like, you're saving the environment by drinking water out of a Yeti. Every place, we, every airport we were in, Richmond, Chicago, Atlanta, all the places we flew in and out trying to get back and forth to Virginia, um, there was a ticker, tick, 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 every time water came out. And as I was thinking about this message, and as I was getting water, I thought, there's a ticker in heaven that's been going since the cross. We know that because it's in Acts. In Acts chapter one, it's at 120. 120 followers of Jesus from the cross. In Acts chapter two, it jumps to 3,000 followers since the cross. In Acts chapter four, it jumps to 5,000, and then it quits telling us but I'm confident it's still counting. And man, I wanna be a part of a movement that continues to add people to the kingdom of God. Now, hear my heart. I could care less if Journey Church, if the organization of Journey Church International, I could care less if one more person ever comes to our church. But I care a lot about one more person coming into the kingdom of God. I care a lot about children. I care a lot about students. I care a lot about hurting families. I care a lot about people struggling with addiction. I care less if our church grows, but I am still about the kingdom of God growing one salvation at a time. I am for every style and type of church that is living great commandment, great compassion, great commission Christianity. From home churches that are really, really small to big churches that are really, really big. I'm good with any of them. But when a church starts to say, when a group starts to say, when a Christian starts to say, this is the size I wanna be for me, they've really stopped living on mission for Jesus and they've started living on mission for themselves. I get that your preferred and maybe your best size church for your personal discipleship is 25 people. That's great. But those 25 people should be adding to the kingdom of God. When a church says, because we're comfortable, we don't want to add any more people to the kingdom of God, they have stopped serving the king of the kingdom of God. So the potential of the church is, there's a ticker. It's why we sent Pastor Mike and Pastor Scott and some of our men and two of our missionaries from Panama to Peru this week. 60 pastors 60 pastors from the Amazon jungle, most of who traveled for three days by boat to get there. They all have three to five pastors that when they get back to their village, they will teach everything that they learned. Why would we do that? Because we believe the kingdom of God is supposed to keep adding people. One person at a time as they learn about the salvation of Jesus. What a great conversation about salvation. What has God said to your heart today about your personal faith walk?
right? If we work back our way backwards through the message today, you know, the last point might've said something like this. I've been really struggling as our church grows and changes with whether or not it still fits me. And I've quit thinking about adding other people and I've just made it about me. That happens. It's something you can grow through. Maybe you've stopped asking God, what change do you want now? You're just satisfied with where you are. Your AI bot has been telling you, you nailed it again, you're perfect. Maybe we have forgotten that the power of the gospel is resurrection life, not our hope, our history. We've forgotten to keep asking and inviting people into that. Maybe we have forgotten or not even considered how to turn every conversation towards Jesus when it's necessary. Maybe we have forgotten that the cross is not just the place we live, it's the place we bring sins of commission and omission and we say, I'm sorry again. And there's an unlimited amount of visits that you can make there. What has God said to you? What does your heart need to do to respond? Our reflection questions will come up, which hopefully will prompt you just to think and pray a little bit. As they do that, listen for the Holy Spirit. Listen to what your heart inside of you says. Pray prayers that you feel like God is speaking to you. And then I'll be back to close as God, thank you for this conversation about salvation today. Guide our thoughts, turn them into prayers as we reflect on these questions now in Jesus' name, amen. Be back in two and a half minutes to close us.